Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning. Good morning. It's really good to be here. I just got back from a couple days visiting the church, New Day Church in South Carolina, and they're doing well. Um, my brother-in-law actually is a leader down there, and so it's cool to connect, uh, that we had that connection with them. Um, and so, but yeah, it's better, it's better to be back here because it's way too hot down there. <laughs> so it was like 100, I got in my car, 103, and it's 95% humidity. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't be here. So, I wasn't there too long, but it was good to be down. So right now we're in the middle of. Can we flip over to the uh, the other thing? We're in the middle of a, a series just started not too long ago called the Upward Journey. We spent the first portion of the year looking at the inward journey, our our, our where where we're going in internally. We're in the middle section of the year where we're looking at the upward journey, where our, our pursuit of God, our, our moving towards who He is. And the last portion of the year is the outward journey, taking the inward and the upward and moving outward into the community, whether it's your work or your job or anywhere you go. But right now, we're in the upward journey, and, uh, and the, key, the key verse in this journey is... I guess I'm going to have to pull it up. Too many things up here now. All right, so the, the key verse in this, in this series is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it simply says this, For we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we see God for who He is, we're transformed. We become like Him. So we're beholding and becoming. It's kind of the, the catchphrase for, for what we're in the middle of. We're beholding God and we're becoming like Him. How do we behold God? There's a couple of different ways, but one of the, the key ways we know who God is is through His Word, through His self-revelation. That's what we're going to look at today. Through the Word of God. Okay, wait. Let's take a second. I can't overstate the amazing reality that in my hand, in my hand I hold the very Word of God. Like this is, this. I have a hard time even understanding it. But God Himself, the Creator of everything that we see and we don't see, saw fit to reveal Himself in this Word. This is, this is, a, this is a huge, serious gift that we've been given. And hopefully today we can, we can be encouraged and also challenged to, to enter even more into a life of the Word. A life of delighting in the Word of God. That's the hope. That we would begin to, if we haven't already, we would step even further into delighting in the Word, the gift of God that He's given to us. So, so we're going to do that by looking at Psalm 119. Now, it says 57 through 64. That's only eight verses. I thought, why not? Psalm 119, if you don't know, it's the longest, not only the longest psalm, but it's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's 176 verses. I have about 30 minutes. That's about five or six verses per minute. I'm just going to, 
I was thinking just preach the whole thing. But, uh, but we'd be here all day. So, and, and it wouldn't make any sense because it would just be, I wouldn't even be able to read it in that amount of time. So we're going to look at eight verses. The way this psalm is set up is, uh, is that it's an acrostic psalm. It's poetry. It's really what it is. So every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is given eight verses. And so we're, this, this section is the Hebrew letter, Chet, which is kind of like our H. It doesn't really matter. There's no particular progression in the psalm. It's just every letter gets eight verses, and every first letter of, the, of each word, each verse, begins with the letter that it's under. So if this is Chet, then the first word of every verse begins with that letter, just to, as a poetic way of expressing comprehensively, God, I delight in your word. In every letter of the alphabet, I'm going to give you praise for your word. That's what this psalm is saying. But a, a brief word, oops, I won't go there yet. A brief word on the psalms in general. I hold in my hand a small little Bible. Now, if you were to guess, you've been around a while, maybe you would there's, there's a lot of small Bibles that you see kind of given out. Gideon does this, and it's great. Usually it's what? It's the Psalms. Yeah, it's, it's New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. Why is that? <laughs> that's, what we, that's what we like to... That's, that's, it's convenient. It's small. It's packaged. The Psalms are like the heartbeat of the Old Testament. And we can just access them and we can kind of glean other narratives from the rest of the Old Testament in the Psalms. The Psalms are very approachable as, as Christians. Actually, throughout history, Christians have been more attracted to the, the, the book of Psalms than any other book of the Bible. And it's, it's because it's accessible. It's because we can identify with the eye of, of the Psalms. When it says, you know, the Lord is my portion. I can say, oh, it's, it's, I can personalize that without any other uh, context of history because the Psalms, in their very nature, are timeless and, and ever relevant. Which means that although we might want to try to take a particular Psalm and put it into a historical context, we can do this, for instance, with Psalm 51, where, where, it, where it's very evident that, that this is David writing out of cry to God and repentance of what happened in 2 Samuel with Bathsheba. But I want to just caution us. Sometimes we'll look at that little um, little subtitle at the bottom of the psalm and say, oh, and we'll go on a, on a rabbit hunt and try to figure out what part of the rest of the Old Testament, like at what point in history this psalm was written. But let's Let's not go there too quickly because the psalm in and of itself, each psalm is communicating something apart from the context that it was, that it was written in. In fact, um, those, those, uh, those little subtitles, it, it can be confusing because, um, because it, it often says a psalm of David, but it could also be a psalm to David. The, the prefix on the Hebrew is... Is, is, it's very complex, and so it can be of David, to David, from David, about David. Um, so, but we know that David was a psalm writer. On this psalm, the, the subtitle is simply Meditations and Prayers Relating to the Law of God. And so it just helps us 
say this whole psalm is meditations and prayers, elevating, praising, giving thanks for the law of God because the law that God gave is good. The law that God gave was a gift to His people to show Him who He is. It was a gift to show them His nature, His character, His holiness, His love, His grace. And we want to not look at the law, the Word of God, as something that is, is, uh, is some sort of straitjacket, but something that is supposed to liberate, something that's supposed to give freedom and, and the right healthy boundaries to walk in truth. That's what it's designed for. So in Psalm 119, there are, there's about eight to ten different words that the psalmist uses throughout the 176 verses to describe the Word of God. He uses words like your law, your testimonies, your precepts, your commandments, your ordinances, your judgments. And they're all used to, to get at this comprehensive Everything that you say, everything that you do, God, I delight in. Now, a lot of people want to want to take each each law, precept, commandment, ordinance, judgment, and say, oh, this is this, this is that, and try to put it in an exact spot. But really, I think they're all supposed to be used synonymously in this psalm to say in every facet of, of what you've said, how you've revealed yourself, God, I praise you. So when he says your words, your promises, your testimonies, your commandments, your law, judgments, precepts, statutes, everything you say and do, that's what I want to reflect. Right? So, so this psalm is actually a psalm of the upward journey. The upward journey is our, is our movement toward God. And the reality is that the upward journey doesn't start with an upward journey, but it starts with a downward journey. It starts with Jesus on high, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh, becoming the Word made flesh, and coming down to us. His downward journey enables us. It's the context in which our upward journey and becoming more like Him, that's the only way it even exists, is in the context of Him coming down to us, living the life we should have lived but couldn't, and dying the death we deserve to die in our place, so that we could walk in a grace-filled upward journey that's a gift, that we can become more and more like Him. That's the upward journey. So we're just going to read Psalm 119, 57 through 64, and then we're just going to work through it, asking a few questions and exploring the meaning of each verse and hopefully come away with a, a hunger for God's Word and also a challenge in our heart to know Him more. So if you can't read that, we'll go through each one individually and the text will be larger, but I'll read it out from here. Psalm 119, 57. 64. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forsaken your law. I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give you thanks, to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I'm a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes.
So there's two questions that we're going to kind of explore this, this morning. And they kind of, they can just go with, with the two sections of this, of these eight verses, 57 through 60. How do we, how do we react to one, to he who is all sufficient? If we're going to say the Lord is my portion, that means he's all sufficient. He's everything I need. How are we to, how do we react to him? And how do we live in relation to he whose love is to be found everywhere? It says the earth is full of your loving kindness. How do we live in relation to him? So, the Lord is my portion. I've promised to keep your words. There's a truth statement here, but there's also a question. The truth statement is, He is all-sufficient. He is everything you need. He is everything. If you didn't have anything, He is everything. And then the question is, is the Lord your portion? If you didn't have anything that you have, and the, and, it's, and the good gifts are from God, everything that He gives us is good, it's, a, it's, a, it's from Him, and we give thanks for everything that we have. But if you didn't have anything, is He still your portion? Is He still everything that you need? Because that's what this is saying. So ancient Israel, there's 12 tribes. There's 12 tribes, and there's one tribe called the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, and they actually didn't have any land. This is something that a Levite would say, and it would be true, because God or God gave land to every one of the tribes except for the tribe of Levi. And he says, you are my portion. So this psalm is a, is a, is a Levitical psalm. This verse is a, is a psalm of the priest. It says, God, you are my portion, and it's, a tr- it's not an allegory. It's a true thing. God, you are my portion. It says it in, in Numbers 18 and Josh. It says it all over the Old Testament. We're going to look at a few. Numbers 18, it says, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, the land of Canaan, the promised land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Joshua 13:33 but the tribe but to the tribe of Levi Moses gave no inheritance the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance just as he said to them So the Levites had no land they owned no property but God promised to take care of them as they served him So if you didn't have everything you have would he be enough He's promised to take care of you is he your portion Another aspect, of another layer of this, of this simple sentence is that in the New Testament we come in contact with this, with this thing called the priesthood of all believers. And so we can say in the Old Testament there was a certain section of the ancient Israelites that were priests. And their job was to offer sacrifices and take care of the spiritual aspect of everybody else. In the New Testament, we get, we get a reality that while in the Old Testament, there's certain places that only priests could go. In the New Testament, there's no place that, that when you're in Christ, you have full access. You have full access to God. You have full access to God. And He has wiped away all sin. He has wiped away all reason for distance. And so there's a priesthood of all believers. Everyone who's in Christ is a priest and has access, full access to the throne of God. 
We see this in a couple places in the New Testament, to name a few. In, in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. This is Peter writing a, a letter to the church in Rome, telling them that as a church, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into your marvelous light. So the role of a priest in this sense, is to proclaim His excellencies and to proclaim what He's done. That's what we do. Hebrews 13 gets at this even further. It says, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. This is priestly language. We're offering up a sacrifice of praise to God, which is, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So your sacrifice is lips that acknowledge His name, And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So your priestly sacrifices, when you say, the Lord is my portion, you have lips that acknowledge His name, that do not neglect to do good, and and that share what you have. So you have no portion, and yet you share what you have. That's 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 what this is saying when it says, the Lord is my portion. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And the book of Hebrews, when it goes further to clarify that, that Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus is our high priest, and, and, and yet we still are called in the sense of being able to offer up sacrifices, but it's not sacrifices that atone for sin. Jesus has done that once and for all. It's sacrifices of praise to God to acknowledge His name, to lift Him up, not, in, not only in a setting of corporate worship, but in a lifestyle of worship in a lifestyle that honors Him, in a lifestyle that, that gives Him glory, that, that does good and shares what, what you have. In the second half of this verse, the Lord is my portion, I have promised to keep your word. The, first, the question that we're asking through the first three verse, four verses is, how do you respond to Him who is all-sufficient? Well, He says, I have promised to keep your word. How do you respond? With, with a pledge of obedience. He's all-sufficient. I, I, will, I will live for you. I've promised to keep your word. Pledged obedience is, is the, the response for this verse. Verse 58 says, I have sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. There's a couple things here to clarify. It uses the word favor to to try to make sense of of what this is saying. The the word for favor that's actually used is face or presence. Show me your face is what Moses prayed. The Bible also says nobody can see God and live. So what's happening here? I'm seeking your face and yet I also know that when I seek your face, if I, if I see your face, then I'm going to evaporate and I'm going to, and who knows what's going to happen to me, I'm going to be gone. But yet I'm hungry for your face. The word, I sought your face, it's actually, I'm sick. I'm sick for your face. Not in the sense of, of disease, but in the sense of gut-wrenching hunger for your very presence, for your face. We can read over this pretty quickly, but when you sit in that, I'm hungry for your face with all my heart. Man. And he says, be gracious to me according to your word. 
You have to know the Word of God to know that you can ask Him to be gracious to you because that's who He is. But if you don't know the Word of God and you have a misconception and you think God isn't gracious, well then you can't say be gracious to me according to your Word because you don't, you, you don't have a right understanding of the Word because you don't know the Word. But if you read the Word, you know that God's gracious. And so you can say, be gracious to me according to your Word. I know who you are through your Word. And so I'm asking you to be gracious to me because your Word tells me that you're gracious and I know you are gracious. So I'm holding you to your word, is what I'm doing. So this is the prayer. How do we respond to him who is all-sufficient? With a heartfelt pursuit of his face. That's how we respond, because we know that he's going he's gonna to come. He's going to show us his face. James 4, 8 fits in here well. It says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. So just the simple encouragement is seek the face of the Lord. Seek His favor, His presence. When you draw near in that way, He will draw near to you. He will come. The next verse, verse 59 says this, I considered my ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies. How do we react to one who is all-sufficient, who is everything that we need? Well, we can, when we consider our ways, our habits, our tendencies, our lifestyle, and when we, when we consider our ways, we recognize that any, we recognize the areas that that our ways, our lifestyle, the the way that we think and act, isn't in alignment. And so we turn. We turn our feet. This is is both a a mental turning, but also this means my feet. I'm physically turning. I'm changing my actions. Right? It starts up here being transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is what God does as we submit to Him, but it's also... Okay, I have I have these these my ways that aren't right, and you're gracious to me according to your word. I'm going to turn my feet to your testimonies. Your testimonies are, are what I've seen you do. I turn my feet to your testimonies. When's the last time you considered your ways? And does and does it? Does it follow with the turning of your feet? Or does it follow with, as a fleeting thought with, with the next thought that might pop into your head? This is, how do you respond to one who is all-sufficient? With thoughtful self-reformation. With repentance. With turning. At any point where, where you're not, when, when, when your life isn't looking like Jesus, I'm going to turn because this is the way of life. This is the way of holiness. This is the way that you're inviting me to live and you're providing grace for me to walk in. All right. Verse 60 I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. I think this is in a context still of when I considered my ways, I turned my feet quickly. I didn't, I didn't wait. I didn't 
Just kind of think of, I, I, I was quick. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. So how do you respond with, with prompt obedience? With, with radical, immediate obedience? As soon as you recognize, as you consider your ways, as soon as you recognize your ways are out of alignment with His ways, you turn your feet and you, and you repent and you, and you begin to follow in His ways immediately. There's so much grace. There's so much favor that comes with following and, and walking obediently before the Lord. There's so, I can't even explain to you the amount of everything that, of, that is good that comes from walking in obedience to the Lord, whether it's the promptings of the Holy Spirit in a moment to go to go and talk to this person or pray for this person, or it's it's a it's a struggle that you have and you and you and you resolve in your heart to be obedient to what He said. There's so much grace that comes in the place of obedience. All right. Transitioning, the, the next this next question is is framed in. How do we live in relation to one whose love is to be found everywhere? Verse 64 says, The earth is full of your loving kindness. How do we respond? Alright. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. We hold the word in times of adversity. You know, it's easy when our lives are, con- are confirmed, or rather, we can, we can, we can recognize, okay, I, my life is going really good right now. Oh, that, that affirms, that, that confirms the Word of God. He, he's blessing me, he's, he's prospering me, He's giving me favor, and that's how it works. It's very, it's very easy to understand, but in times of adversity, when, when, when the enemy comes and, and tries to steal, kill, and destroy, when, 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 it, when things are tough, when life is hard, do you still hold the word? That's the question. It says, the cords of the wicked have encircled me. This could be, the cords of the wicked could be a, like a literal enemy. Often, we can, we can understand that this isn't, this isn't necessarily a person. This isn't necessarily the, the, the business deal that went bad and now I have an adversary and, and it's the cords of the wicked. No, this is, this is the aspects of life. This is the, the ways, any, any, any way that, that the enemy would want to distort or, or pervert or take away from you something. You can say, I feel like the cords of the wicked have encircled me. And that could be a, an honest and true statement. But do you still hold on to His law? Do you still hold on to what the word that He's promised? Because that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it gets hard and we say, this doesn't make sense. But yet, I have not forgotten your law. I have not forgotten what you say. I'm going to hold tight to your word even more in times of adversity, even more in, in, in the hard times. And it's going to be my my hope, it's going to be the way that I move forward is by holding on to what you've said. Holding the word in times of adversity. Alright, 
Verse 62, at midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. At midnight. In the middle of the night, man, I'm sleeping. But it says, in midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you. What I think, when I, when I read this, just my first thought is, I'm, I'm woken up with a, a desire to spontaneously erupt in thanksgiving. And, and just, just say, thank you, Lord, for all the... Man, it's easy to get numb. It's easy to, to just be very... Um, just just take, take all that you've been given for granted. Take all the, all the gifts that God's given you, everything that you can look at and say, I'm so thankful for that. To just go numb with it and, and still hunger for more and still, and still look at your life in terms of what you don't have in terms of what you, you wish would have happened that didn't happen. But there's something about spontaneous thanksgiving when, it, when, when a moment of gratitude hits you to acknowledge it and to step into it rather than just to, to let the next thought be, oh, but look at everything that isn't going well or look at everything that I don't have or look at how my friends are doing and how, I, how, how I'm struggling and they're prospering. But here we're, we're challenged with the idea of at an inconvenient time, which is midnight, which is in the middle of the night when you probably should be sleeping, at an inconvenient time to wake up, to actually be stirred to wake up and give thanks to God. Wow. Because of your righteous ordinances. My, my brain doesn't really know where to put the, the phrase righteous ordinances because it sounds so formal. And it sounds so religious. But this is really just the things that you've said that are like principles to live by that I'm seeing come to pass. You've set a law in order the way the world works, the way things work uh, in your kingdom. And I'm praising you because I'm reaping the benefits of living a life in, in your will. And I'm thanking you for it, even when it's inconvenient, even in the middle of the night. How do we respond? How do we live in relation to, to, to Him whose love is to be found everywhere? By ordering life to make time to delight in His Word. I'm going to order my life. I'm going to make time to delight in his righteous ordinance. I'm going to make time, even if it's at midnight, I'm going to make time in my life before life happens. I'm going to step back and look at my life, look at my week, look at my days, and say, I'm going to make time to delight and give thanks for what you've done. When we don't make time, it really does slip away. All right. 63. It says, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. I'm a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. This is simply making friends, acknowledging kinship with those who follow God's Word. Despite any other differences, despite any other judgments, I'm going to put 
those who honor the Word of God above and before any other allegiances, any other socioeconomic status, right? Any other uh, peer relationship that, like, so in, in Galatians, Paul calls out Peter because Peter's eaten with the Gentiles, and then some Jewish leaders walk in, and Peter no longer will eat with the Gentiles because they're not clean, even though they're all in Christ. And so Paul calls them out for his hypocrisy. So because Paul's seeing the reality of, of, this, of this verse. If you're a companion of all those who, who fear the Lord, then you're not going to get up because of, you're ashamed to be associated with somebody who people who, who you respect and really who you fear more than you fear God. Don't, don't think that they're respectable. I'm a companion of those who fear you. That's really a, that, that really realigns some things in the way that we understand culture, in the way that we understand our place in, in any, any group that we're in. Making friends with those who follow the Word. Making room for the people of God in my life. One thing I want to mention here, I think in this room, we're pretty good at this. Maybe largely because we, we find ourselves in and around people who, who really do honor God, who look like us, who think like us, and who talk like us. I think the challenge here is to step back and say, do, am I willing to acknowledge, to befriend, to come close with people who don't acknowledge your word? Am I willing to be in relationship and, and pray for and long for the salvation, and not just the salvation, but the life transformation of, of people who, who li- don't live according to your word? Of people who actually are either adamantly opposed to you or live a lifestyle of, of complete opposition to your word? Am I willing to associate with those people? I think, I think that's, that's the heart of Jesus. He says, I'm willing to... I'm going to be a companion of those who fear you, but I'm also going to call out fake hypocrisy that really fears man more than God. And I'm going to be a companion of those who don't even know you so that they can, they can see what it looks like for God to come close. All right. Last verse of this, of this section simply says, The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord, Teach me your statutes. Man. This, this verse, I was, when I was working on this, on this sermon, this verse has hit me. Because you think about it. How, how many other ways could you finish this sentence? Right? The earth is full of... How many, how many other ways of thinking? How many other narratives? How many other storylines, ways to see the world could you, could you fill in? With this, with the, with this, if it didn't say your loving kindness, but the earth is full of blank. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of things you could say, but to be able to say above and before anything else, the earth is full of your loving kindness. That's that's the air because that, that's the air that we breathe. 
is an air saturated with God's ever faithful love, despite anything that we've done or could do or would do against Him. Here's some examples. The earth is full of evil. The earth is full of broken systems. The earth is full of oxygen. It's true. The earth is full of pollution. Most things are negative, we would say. The earth is full of disappointment. The earth is full of suffering. The earth is full of selfish ambition. No, the earth is full of the faithful and unfailing love of God. That fills the earth. Even in a broken world, even in a world that does have broken systems, that does have evil, that does have disappointment, that does have suffering, beyond and above, like a cloud hovering over everything, is the loving kindness of the Lord that fills the earth. Wow. What would it look like to see the world through the reality that God's love permeates the very air that we breathe? To live in the reality that His love is everywhere we go, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. His love for you, for me, for everybody that we see. His love for creation. His love for everything that He's made. His love fills the earth. Man, that is such a a paradigm that we need to step into. To begin to see the world that is full of His love. How do we respond to Him? You know, this, this whole... This whole psalm, that we only looked at eight verses, but this whole psalm is, it just elevates the Word of God as high as it can be elevated. The Bible is God's self-revelation. It's God's Word to us. And, uh, and it can't be overstated, overstated how amazing that is. So, so um, you know, we... We hold, we, either, it's, either it's on your phone or it's, you have a paper Bible. I've actually committed, I was thinking about this on the way down, I, didn't, I don't know if I've put it in words yet, but in my, in my heart, I've committed for as long as I live to carry around a paper Bible <laughs> simply to, to signify that no matter how convenient it can be for me to have my Bible on my phone among everything else that I do in my life. It's all oriented around my phone. There's something distinct about the Word of God that's been given to us that I wanted to, I want to honor and, and recognize simply by, simply by carrying around a Word, the Word of God that, is, that, that has no other words in it. It's just His Word to us. It's the Word of God that enables us to behold Him, Right? We don't know who God is apart from His Word. Right? Romans 1 says that everyone's without excuse because He's revealed parts of Himself just through nature. But to know God for who He is, that's, that's, we know Him through His Word. And the cool thing is, if we were to approach the Word of God simply as a, a study of, of some deity in a, in a cold manner, we could, we could know the Word of God really well. There's, there's commentaries written. There's brilliant people in the world who know the Word of God in, in the sense of, 
what it's saying in the, in the context in which it was written. They know it really well, but they don't know God. And it's sad, but it's true. They don't know Him in the way that he was, he's, he's inviting them to know Him, but they know His Word really well. And so we can get, we can, we can be, we can fall into the trap of thinking that if I know God's Word really well, then I, can, then I know Him and it means the same thing. It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing, but that can, I don't want to, le- to let that be an excuse to not know the Word of God. To, to, a hunger for God should lead you straight to His Word. Often, I think in our stream, in our cultural church expression, we don't have as much of a value. Now, I'll say this carefully. The Word of God and knowing what it says isn't, isn't necessarily elevated as high as it should be because we want, we want the encounter. We want, we want the experience with God's Spirit. And so, I don't want to spend time to mentally exhaust myself in what, this, what, what God's trying to say here because I want to know Him right now. I want to experience His presence. Right? That's what the psalmist is saying. I sought your face with all my heart. I want to know you. But we need to understand that we know God through His Word. And the better we know His Word, the better we can know Him. And also, the, the more you know His Word, the more every other area of your life needs to inconveniently bow to what His Word's saying. Because if we can, if we can live in a, in a reality or in a, in a life that says, God, I, I, I know you and, I, and, and you're, you're everything to me, but yet we, we don't explore the parts of God's Word that we're uncomfortable with, or we don't explore the parts of God's Word that are challenging to us and, and straight up convicting and are going to make you live a different life, we're fooling ourselves. But we, we, we can't even know what it's saying until we enter into it ourselves. Preaching on a Sunday morning 52 weeks in a year can only give you a glimpse into what the Word of God is saying to you. You need to get into it yourself. You need to read it and make time for it. Another thing I wanted to mention is, um, is just the reality that the law is good. Psalm 1, I don't have it up here, but I wanted to read it. Psalm, the, the book of Psalms starts with this. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, the Torah of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Now, the tendency would be to fall into legalism, which is like a self-righteous mindset that believes that I can be in good standing with God just by obeying His law. Just by obeying what He says, I can be in good standing with Him. And the more I obey His law, the, the, the better I'll be. This, is, this, this denies grace. Like what this, what this, this way of living does is it denies grace. But what, what it also denies is that the law is grace. John 14, or John 1, so this is kind of where, where it ties in. Jesus, you can, you can read this psalm, or these eight verses, and say, wow, I, 
that guy, that, the, that, that, the heart of that psalm is so hungry for God. Jesus is the fulfillment of that psalm. That, that was his heart that we were reading. We were reading the heart of Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. We see in the Gospels his heart. And every, every aspect of, of this psalm is, is, is the embodiment of the Word of God. The pre-incarnate Word of God that was made flesh in Jesus. I just want to read this. John 1, 14-18. The Word, the Word of God, the same Word that was used throughout this psalm, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This, is, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made Him known. This grace upon grace, I believe what this is saying is that the law was grace. Jesus was grace upon grace. Jesus was grace upon the grace that was already given, the gift that was already given in the law. This is um, just a very practical thing I wanted to mention. For anybody who is interested in knowing God's Word better, this is an amazing resource. It's very accessible. Um, and I just have you go to it and check it out. It's just called thebibleproject.com, I believe. Yeah, thebibleproject.com. These guys are doing really good work. It's just these really well-done videos that explain a ton of stuff. They go through almost every book of the Bible and, and give a short synopsis. And they really, what it makes me do is it makes me hunger for the Word of God to get into it. It gives me a context to understand something and to say, oh, I want to know that more. I wanna, I wanna, I'm hungry for that. I want to I know what they're talking about on a deeper level. So if you, have any, if you just want to write that down, thebibleproject.com. It's good. It's good stuff. It's really good. Yeah. So that's the very practical encouragement. Check it out. We're on the upward journey, and the higher you go, the less you're able to pick and choose which parts of the Word of God you want to live according to. The higher you go in the upward journey, the more your whole life needs to be submitted to everything that God says, whether you like it or not. It's just the reality of what it means that Jesus is Lord. It means you're in submission to His Lordship. I can't make you love the Bible. I can't make you read the Bible. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And it should not be done out of a legalism, out of a duty-driven obligation, but out of a love for God. Your love for God, your desire to see His face, to pursue His presence, should compel you to read His Word. It should compel you to get deep into the parts of the Bible that maybe you don't understand. Maybe you don't really feel, feel drawn to. Dive in. Let this be a helpful resource, but not, um, not a, a way to replace your own pursuit of God and His Word.